Uh, in our study through Mark's gospel, you all, Jesus calmed two terrible storms on the Sea of Galilee. He calmed the first one with two Greek words, hush, and then it's one Greek word, but it was be silent. Boom, they're calmed. And then he calms another one when he's walking on the, the sea. <clears throat> he steps into the boat and boom, the storm is calm. For the Jews, I talked about this when I taught it, the sea represents uh, darkness. It represents, uh, you know, evil and foreboding. It represents the enemy of our souls. That, that's symbolic of the sea in the same way darkness does that. And so you get this double whammy in these calming of the storms. It was, <coughs> excuse me, the sea. And y'all, it's no accident that those two storms occurred under the cover of darkness. It's no accident. Jesus wasn't giving them a lesson about weather. He was giving them and us lessons about faith, was he not? When the enemy of our souls comes against us in whatever its form. Now, here's my question to you. What about the storms Jesus doesn't calm? You ever have one? You in one? You will. There are storms in life. Jesus doesn't calm the wind and the waves with a, with a word. No, no, in fact, the storm just keeps going and the boat sinks and people die. <clears throat> I commented or quoted, you know, um, another elder, uh, Tony Wood, had, had written a song years ago. It was a Scott Crepain song. Sometimes he calms the storm. And when I taught the passage, I quoted it. In fact, I had it sung, but it says this in the lyrics. Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered peace. Be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. What do we do when he doesn't calm the storm? Some of us are riding the waves right now. Uh, some things, honestly, let's face it, some of the storms in life are due to stupid choices. We don't use that word stupid in our home, so be careful, kids. Don't say that, but it's things we do, and, and uh, we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes it's the choice of others. Sometimes it's just flat-out evil. Sometimes uh, it's it's because we live in fallen bodies in a fallen world, y'all. There are relationships right now uh, on the brink. Bad things are happening. Uh, people we love uh, have cancer. Uh, they are dying. There are wombs that are barren, finances that are strained, marriages that are on life support, and we could go on and on. This is, this is in the room right now. How about this one? God orchestrates a change in church leadership. You get an email. We're talking about it today, and we'll work through it in the coming weeks and months. There is a storm brewing, I'm using this metaphorically, in our text today. And Jesus is right at the center of it. And he doesn't calm it. He doesn't settle it down. It rages. I'm going to tell you something. It's a storm that the disciples, and it's hard to understand this, but it's true. And let's not throw them under the bus for it. But they didn't anticipate it. They weren't expecting it. And boom, it's on them. And I think there's something for us today to go, okay. I'm going to look at it theologically, biblically, but also in a practical sense. What, what do we do? What do you do when you're in a storm? And you know what? God is not going to calm it. I think we'll find that. In the text today. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're in chapter 14. 
And we are in verses 43 to 52, okay? By way of context, last week, Rob took us from the uh, city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley back up to the Mount of Olives, and we are now in a garden. Now, catch this. We're in a garden. Don't miss that location. We're going to watch this storm unfold. Guess what? It's going to be dark. Don't miss that reminder of what's happening in this story. Uh, Rob mentioned research has verified what the Bible has always told us, and that is we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. You remember the research it showed? Basically, the, 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 we overestimate our commendable traits. You know, here's the average, and we go, you know, in, in terms of the commendable stuff, yeah, I'm a little above everybody else. And then we take the non-desirable traits, and we look at the average, and we say, no, I don't have as much as that as everyone else does. We are all self-deceived, and that self-deception gets crushed in this storm. Watch it as it unfolds. I'm going to take it in three sections. And I got three words just from the three sections. So these are just right out of the text for those of you with that outlined sense of, of, of learning. We're going to look at the kiss, the sword, the scripture. I'll say it again. The kiss, verses 43 to 46. The sword, verses 40, verse 47, one verse. And then the scripture. So just right out of the text, 48 to 52. Would you follow along in your Bibles as I read God's word to us? this Lord's day. Verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. You know, you might wonder, I, I often have, why did he have to have a signal? You know, why did Judas have to go kiss Jesus Christ so that they would know he's the one? You guys know this. They'd seen him. They'd talked to him face to face. They knew what he looked like and what he sounded like when he talked. You wonder why, why the... Why the signal? Well, on a, on a theological note, I'm going to get to this in a moment, because this is what the scripture said would happen. That's the most important. But don't miss the practical note either. Uh, they know they need to take Jesus under the cover of darkness. They're afraid of the crowds. Jesus, Jesus will put that in their face in a moment. And I want you to think about, you know, even if it's a full moon under the darkness in an olive tree uh, garden, so to speak, with people with torches, as the other gospel accounts tell us, they came in with torches and swords and clubs and the mist and the smoke. You tell me under that darkness, how easy is it to tell one bearded guy in a, in a worn out tunic from the other bearded guy in a worn out tunic from the other bearded guy? You, you know, I'm, I'm, it's kind of funny, but it's also true that they didn't want to grab the wrong person this is where we get that term, the kiss of death. You know, that's, that's biblical. That's, that's where it all comes from, how we use it even in our vernacular today. When uh, the text uses the word kiss, it uses it two different ways. The first time it says uh, he kissed him as a signal, it's that Greek word phileo. You know, it's a, it can be translated love as well, friendly love, but that's kiss in the Greek. And then when it says 
Jesus, he says, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Y'all, that's the Greek word kata phileo. So why, 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 why did he go from phileo to kata phileo? Kata is the intensive form of the verb kiss. And so it's just to tell us that, you know, he had the kiss plan, but when they kissed and greeted one another, you know, you could normal kiss, normal hug. This was not a normal one. That's why it's saying that it's when he grabbed Jesus, rabbi, and kissed him, he held him. He held him intensely, i.e., this is the one. No mistake about it. Take him and lead him away. Here's the question for you and I. How is it that Judas could be with Jesus all those years? I'm telling you, you know, I mean, with him, with him, with him, hear him, hear him, hear him, see the miracles, be on the sea when it's calm, watch him walk on water, all those things. How is it that he could experience all that, hear the, the, the gospel, and then in a moment turn and reject him in such a way? You ever think about that? Can I give you a, a, another question to think about? I, I, I don't know the answer per se. I got some thoughts that I'll offer, but... Here's, a, here's another question. I think it's actually a more practical, I think it's a better question for us. Could that happen today? Could, can someone be that close to Jesus and then in a moment not be close? Can that happen today? I really want you to think about it. I think the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. That uh, a person can, can hear the gospel, can, I mean, honestly, you can, Teach the Bible. I can be a person, it could be a person that teaches the Bible. It could be a person that's serving in the, our children's ministry. You could lead a small group. You could take a mission trip to Haiti. You could say all the right things. You could, you, you know, you can have the right vernacular and your life can look fabulous. And you may not know Jesus. That's the truth. If, if you and I, and I include myself in this, if we're exposed to the truths of the scripture, and we fail to trust those truths. Uh, what do you mean trust those truths? I mean, believe they're true for me. Let's take the most fundamental, glorious one. That Jesus Christ was the son of God who lived the perfect life we could not. Who died the death our sin deserved. Who was buried and rose again. And that Jesus Christ did that for me. If you never come to the place where you've gone no, he's my savior. I'm trusting that he, what he did, he did for me. Instead, you're, you're, you're good with it. You're good with it for other people. You, you, you know, you're gonna live how Jesus said live, but you never bowed the knee. You see, you've, you've not trusted what the scripture has said. Take that and multiply it over years of being exposed to biblical truth where you're not trusting that, that what God says is true and acting on that truth and it's changing you from within. And I'll tell you something, the longer you sit under that biblical truth and refuse to apply it, you're really just building a callus on your heart and it will get so calloused, you all, that you'll find yourself when the storm hits and it will, you don't know Jesus. It really can't happen. It's a sobering warning for all of us, including myself. Now, all the gospel accounts include different 
include this account of the betrayal and arrest. And all of them add up something a little bit different. I'm only going to grab two of these to help us get to our own applications. I want you to flip over in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. You're going to go to the right. So you're going to go Mark, Luke, and then you're going to get to John. I want you to go to John 18. John 18. And I want you to notice as John records this account in John 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. There's a couple phrases that I don't want us to miss. John 18, beginning in verse 4, it says, So Jesus, here's the, here's the arrest, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, you might underline that, went forth. Jesus is the one that went forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I lost not one, you know, in my, in my text, in the New American Standard, Jesus is saying, I am he. But in the Greek text, he uses two words, ego, me, I am. And he says it how many times in the text? I am, I am, I am. And for the original reader, for the Hebrew, we would go all the way back to Moses. Your mind would go there intentionally it's the spirit had him write it this way. So you'd go back here and you'd remember, oh my gosh, that, that is the name that God said of himself when Moses came and said, I'm gonna go to Pharaoh, you're sending me. But when I get to Pharaoh, who do I say has sent me? God, what is your name? And God says, I am. In his words, he's declaring his deity. And the first time he said it, could you picture this? That they're standing there and he says, I am, and they fall back. They fell down to the ground. Now, I don't know what that totally looked like, but I'm gonna tell you, if you were on the front row, you would be thinking something just knocked me down. If you were in the back row, you don't even know what happened per se. Judas was on the front row uh, at the... Brentwood campus, you know, it, when I'm there, I'm always on the front row, uh, and there's this big, there's a stage, staging there, and underneath it is this big bass amplifier, and I'm telling you guys, there are times when I'm standing, I know Jay, if you're ever over there, Jay's laughing because he sat in front of this thing, your clothes move, boom, 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 I mean, it's like, it's like the sound's hitting your body, and the same thing happens here, something hits their body and puts them down. And it's just Jesus by saying a word. I want to ask you a question, and this is going to get us to our application. Because I think the text is, is, is showing us this, but it's maybe not so obvious. But if we ponder it for a moment, we, we see it. You know, Jesus, Jesus is the one who steps up and initiates. Jesus is the one who says, I am, lays him down. Here's the question. Amidst this chaos of an, of an evening in this garden, who is in control? I'm asking you. I'm not convinced you're, you're with me on this. God's in control, you all. God's in control. I know, I got you. I know you answered, but you answered in the squeaky voice. No one just yelled it. Um, God's in control. 
It's evident, is it not evident that God's in control even as these events unfold? I want, you to, I want you to hold on to that, okay? That's the kiss. How about the sword? One verse, verse 47, back in Mark 14. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Do you need to, do you need to know who that is? You got a guess? God, Peter. You knew it would be Peter. John tells us it's Peter. Uh, sword in this context is not, don't think William Wallace, I'm not going down, you know, freedom. It's not that, it's a dagger. It's a small dagger. It's deadly because you, you can pierce the body or you can cut someone's throat. What do you think Peter was trying to do? Seriously, I think he's trying to cut the guy's throat. I mean, you're not gonna take my savior. You're not gonna do this. He, and the guy dodges and loses an ear. It's Jesus heals the ear immediately. It was Malchus, the high priest's slave. I want you to turn once more in your Bible to another account of this very event, but you're gonna go left this time to Matthew. You're gonna go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and you're gonna start in verse 52. And again, we're gonna pick something up here that we wanna hold on to. Jesus said to him, put your sword, you know, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. <clears throat> and then this, this little statement. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? There's a story in the Old Testament. It's in uh, 2 Kings 19. And the nation of Israel is in a bad place. And uh, God's actually disciplining them. But um, the, the penultimate enemy of Israel in the Old Testament is probably the Assyrians. These were the bad people. These were... The people you see these engravings where they carry on their they carry spears and on the top of the spear would be a severed head. These are the people that would put people on walls and strip their skin off. These are the people that were brutal, ungodly, debauchery. And they're coming against Israel, and the, the text says that one angel kills eighty-five thousand Assyrians in one night. One angel kills 85,000 Assyrians in one night. And Jesus looks at Peter, put the sword away. You do not understand. If I say the word, my father will put 72,000 angels in this garden. This is not an issue of who's in control and it's also not an issue of this. Let me ask you this question. Who holds the power in this garden? Yeah, y'all are really timid today. God holds the power, you see. Not the religious authorities who they thought they had the power to come get this rabbi. Not the ones with the swords and the clubs. No, the one who is now handcuffed holds 
the power. God himself holds the power in the garden. Okay, back at Mark 14. Alistair Begg made a comment that I'm, I'm building off of. It was his insight on, on a weapon here that I want to develop, develop a little bit. Um, but I'm going to take it this way. When, when, uh, think about it. Think about Peter for a moment. When we feel out of control and do not know who is in control, we reach for the wrong weapon. Stay with me. When you feel out of control and you don't know who's in control, we reach for the wrong weapon and Peter reached for the dagger. And she said, put the dagger away. And I think analogous for us would be we, we still reach for the wrong weapon, you and I, when, when, we're, when we feel out of control. I don't know, we reach for the, you might reach for the checkbook and say, we're going to clean this up. This will make us feel better, more in control. We're going to reach for the calendar. We're going to eliminate everything. Uh, I'm going to reach for the credit card, go shopping. I'm going to reach for the pills. I'm going to reach for the, the alcohol. I'm going to reach for the internet. I'm going to reach for my kids and get them. And sh- you know, we're going to reach for something to feel some semblance. I'm going to reach for my work to go, I, I got to get in control here. But none of it holds, y'all. None of it holds. And Beg makes the point that our battle, and you know this, is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and dark forces. It's against the enemy of our soul, the devil and his minions. And the scripture is absolutely clear on this. There's two weapons in this spiritual battle, the word of God and prayer. I need more. No, you don't. When you reach for more, you're probably going to reach for the wrong weapon. It's the truth of God's word and it's prayer. Now think about the story that we're reading. What preceded this unbelievable storm? What was Jesus doing? In the, what was he doing? Say it. Yeah, one was praying and three were what? One is calm amidst the storm and three are what? Terrified, going crazy. See that? Does this make sense, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? I thought about this, and boy, this was right on the fly that I, that I said this last week. I've had time to think about it, and I'm, I'm still going to say it. Uh, someone sent me a note in the week and said, man, it's, not, it's probably not good to make significant theological statements on the fly, which I did last week. So now it's no longer on the fly. I've had time to think about it. I could still be wrong, but I'm going to say it. You know, being out of control uh, is not a flaw or a weakness in the, in the human condition. And, and when I said it, this is what dawned on me. I went, is, is, is us being out of control a consequence of the fall? Is it a consequence of sin? Let me ask you this question. Before Adam and Eve sinned, were they in control? So being out of control is not about our sinfulness, is it? It's quite frankly about being made the way God wanted us made and being made in the image of God and being made in such a way. How do I say this? We, we're never made to be in control. We're made to be a dependent people 
upon the only one who is in control. Do you see that? It's not sin to be out of control. It's, it's who we are. And we're made to trust the one who's the only one who's in control. Rob said it last week, neediness is not a design flaw. Incapacity is not weakness. In fact, it's the ground of our greatest strength. Y'all, you know this and the gospels teach it. When we are weak, see, we go to weakness and go, that's no good. And the Bible says, go to weakness. Because in your weakness, when you can't, won't, are unable, that's when God says and shows, I'm strong, I'm able, I'm your God. And shows the world. But I'm going to tell you, he doesn't show that through, I'm strong and I'm able and God come help me a little. No, it's in our incapacity, in our neediness, in our brokenness that God shows himself strong. The kiss, the sword, the scripture, verses 48 to 52. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place, underline this, to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. I'm gonna tell you, you could look at that verse for a long time and that darkness will start to get over you, what Jesus felt in that moment. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Now, Matthew is going to record the very same words that I said for you to highlight. He's going to say, how then will the scripture be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? Mark concludes his thing by saying, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scripture. Zechariah said hundreds of years before the coming of Christ that the shepherd will be crushed and the sheep will be scattered. That's verse 27 in the same chapter we're in. And, and Jesus quoted Zechariah. And then in chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus, after Peter says, you're the Messiah, he says, everybody come here. We're going to Jerusalem I'm going to be handed over. Same words. They are going to seize me. I'm going to be handed over. It keeps saying in our text. And they're going to beat me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, be buried. But I'm going to raise again in three days. And then in chapter 9, verse 31, he says, everybody, come here. Come here. I got something important to tell you. We're going to Jerusalem. They are going to hand me over. They're going to seize me. I'm going to be beaten, betrayed, and they're going to, I'm going to be buried, dead. I'm going to raise three days later. And then in chapter 10, verse 33, he says, everybody come here. We're getting close to Jerusalem. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to hand me over. I will be killed. But three days later, I will rise again. And then even in the upper room, he says, one of you is going to betray me. He's telling, in other words, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. What appeared out of control, and this is even to the disciples' eyes, quite frankly. Wow, think of the garden. I mean, guys running around naked, you know, literally a guy's running naked through the smoke-filled garden and 12 disciples are all bolting on Jesus. Do you imagine there's some yelling? There's some confusion. There's blood on the ground. Someone's got his ear cut off. There's a, who knows what's going on in this garden? It's chaotic. And yet every faithless faithless act and every faithful act happens to fulfill the scripture. What? You, what? 
How about the, the, the guy in the linen sheets? You know what we know about that? Not much. Uh, a lot of people think it's Mark. And, and it could be Mark. There's some reasons it could be Mark. Um, why did Mark include it? Well, I, I will offer this to you. This is what I'm going to say why he included it. Notice that line, verse 50, and they all left him and fled. I'm telling you, that's one of the saddest, darkest statements in the Bible. And then he adds the story. And so it's like this. They all left him and fled. There was even a guy there that was naked who would rather run naked, which is not funny. It's shameful. Would rather run naked and shameful than stay with Jesus. That's why I think the story's there. Y'all, Jesus is alone. Um, What we are watching unfold in the final analysis is not the story of a good man being taken advantage of, betrayed, thrown under the bus. It's not the disciples throwing the rabbi under the bus to save their skin. This is not the story of religious and political powers overruling and taking the Son of Man. Let me say it three times. This is the story of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the story by which God made a promise in Genesis 3 and he said, I am going to send a man born of a woman one day who will crush the serpent's head and who will make a way for fallen humanity to be back in right relationship with me. That's what's happening theologically. This is the story by which God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, we're not reading a tragedy. We are reading the story of God keeping his word in the most horrible, unjust event that ever happened on the face of this planet. Look at verse 27. A couple weeks ago, it says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it's, it's written. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who strikes down the shepherd? Who? Mandy, you're the only one and no one can hear you. God strikes down the shepherd. This isn't the, the devil didn't strike him down. God strikes down the shepherd because God is pleased, Isaiah said, to crush the son. Why? Because he loves us so much. And it's the only way that the path can be made for you and I to be back in right relationship with God the Father. Let me ask you one more time. When we read this story, who's in control? Yeah, a few of you are getting close. Uh, Who has all the power? God has all the power. And by the way, as we understand where this story is going and why God does what he does, would you say that God's intentions are for harm or for good? Say it. For good. God's in control. He's all powerful. And he's wholly good. And so when you're in a storm that God does not calm, What do you do? You do what they failed to do. They'll do it later. 
And y'all, it's not rocket science. You rest in the promises of God. And y'all, that comes out of my mouth so easy. And it lives in my life and your life so hard. But God has given us his Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so by dependence upon the Spirit, you and I in the storms that don't calm and there's some that won't, we rest in the promises that God has made. God made a promise to them, you see. Earlier in the chapter, he said, but I will go ahead of you to Galilee. In other words, look, you're getting ready to go through hell. I'm getting ready to go through it. But I will meet you in Galilee. So Jesus is willing to say before it ever happens, death can't keep me from meeting you in Galilee. And he looks at them and says, I will meet you. So he's, he's in, this, in essence saying to them, Peter, your denials, Look, all of you, when you run, your unfaithfulness won't keep you from being in Galilee to meet me. Why? Because I'm faithful. Because God is faithful. Because God is working out his plan for your good, your good and, and his glory. And this is where we go in the storms that don't get calmed. And I want to go there just for a moment. Let's do that. We're running a little late. I know we had a lot to say today. But would you bow your head and let's just, let's, let's, let's bow, the, bow the knee together. Father, we come in a recognition right now that there are things in our life that threaten to undo us, that constantly undermine our trust in your word. And I just want you to name them. You, you name them silently in your own heart, the things that are in your world that are threatening to undo you, undermine your trust in God's word that just seems so contradictory and wrong. But name those things. Bring them to God. Oh God, in the midst of these things, we come today under your word and we are gonna choose by faith and we only do it because your spirit enables us to trust that you're in control, you're all powerful, you're holy good and you love us. We are not in control, but neither is the enemy of our souls. You are. And in Christ Jesus, you have demonstrated to us and to the world that you, O oh God, keep your promises. And you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing can separate us from your love, from the work you have begun in us. You will, for the work you've begun in us, you will complete. And so enable us in these moments, Lord, to pray, to go to your word, and to find a peace that surpasses understanding, even when the storm does not settle. In Christ's name.
Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to send you out. I mentioned Tony Wood's song, uh, Sometime he, Sometimes He Calms the Storm. I want to end with that second verse. It begins, Sometimes He Calms the Storm. With a whispered peace be still, he can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Then he concludes, sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm. At other times, he calms the child. And indeed he does through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. If you want to pray with someone We've got a team up here to pray with you. Make your way up and don't leave without doing that. God bless. Have a good week.